One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Thank you for downloading the Talk Politics podcast. This week I am joined for the entire show by Gloria De Piero, former Labour MP for Ashfield. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. We're joined on the line by Conservative MP for Peterborough and member of the Health and Social Care Select Committee, uh, Paul Bristow. Uh, welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you for having me on, Alexis. Thank you for giving us your time. Um, we are uh, all eagerly awaiting this week. I think it's going to be Thursday uh, when we hear about the second phase or the, the way out of um, the lockdown uh, that the prime minister is going to start suggesting. Uh, we've also uh, heard in today's Sunday papers that there is going to be uh, another sage, if you like, another group of scientists who are going to be um, doing their first meeting uh, tomorrow. The independent group will broadcast live on YouTube and take their evidence from global experts and present it to the, your committee, in fact. Uh, it, it, it's, it's going to be uh, given to the, the, their evidence. Are you going to be open and welcoming for that advice? Uh, how do you feel about another group of experts publicly um, giving advice to the government? Well, I fully support being open and transparent as much as one can be uh, throughout this, this, this crisis. And I think we need to listen to as many different experts, different opinions uh, that we can, uh, and then we can make a judgment. But it's keen. I just want to keep. It's, what I am very keen to stress is, I think the government so far has been guided by the science rather than the politics of this. And so, if we can hear from more scientists, we can hear from more experts. That can only be a good thing. There is a lot less speculation in today's newspapers than what we have become accustomed to in terms of how, when we do ease the lockdown, what it will look like. It's notable today that there are far fewer of those stories. But mm. some things that I have seen, um, uh, I, I'd like to put to you. So uh, in terms of that press conference on Thursday, when we get that roadmap, the target, I read, is people who could be at work but aren't like construction mm. workers, like food retailers. Um, mm. Does that, does that ring, a, ring true to you? Oh, nice to talk to you, uh, Gloria. I think, uh, again, uh, we just need to be guided by uh, the, the science and being guided by what is the right thing but to do. But they should have been at work. No, they were never prevented from being at work, if you see what I mean. So, right. so that's what... what you, it, that's what my, my point is, really, where I read that the target is those people that could be at work but aren't. 
Paul, um, as I want to pick up on, on what Gloria has just said there. The, the truth is that all the polling shows that people are, uh, their number one worry seems to be that we might lift the lockdown a little bit too soon. Uh, people, as Gloria mentioned, are reluctant to use public transport, uh, mm. go back to work in certain circumstances. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. We are delighted to say that we are joined on the line by Professor Michael Bearer, uh, Professor of Clinical Microbiology and Honorary Consultant Microbiologist at the University of Leicester. Professor, thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, Professor, I uh, wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, PPE. Uh, it's It's been uh, one of the main talking points uh, it, during this crisis. Uh, it's also been one of the areas where the government have admitted that uh, perhaps they could have done a little bit better. But it's a huge logistical um, issue, of course. And we are now hearing that the, of course, with it being a global crisis, uh, we seem to, because we've we acted so late, we seem to be struggling. We're, we're sort of further down on the list, if you like, uh, with many international buyers. What is the situation, as you understand it, with uh, the hospital trusts when when doctors are not able to get hold of PPE through the general means? Have a lot of them resulted in trying to get hold of PPE themselves personally out of their own pocket? Well, I, I'm not involved in the in the front frontline clinical attention. I am involved in sourcing uh, face masks for our own work, and and uh, obviously discuss with frontline colleagues what's what's going on. Um, I, I guess there are two levels of problem. One is uh, actually working out the scale of need. And secondly, um, recognising uh, the, the, the different needs uh, of, uh, of different clinical groups. Mm -hmm. And one of the dangers is that you know, everybody who's seeing patients uh, feels they need maximum protection. Uh, and that obviously uh, puts a, a massive strain on the system when the reality is you know, uh, with with people who are not symptomatic or have low probability that they've actually got the infection, you, you, a a simple surgical mask is probably as good as anything else. And the people who really need it are the, the ones in, te in intensive care units and in uh, uh, emergency rooms where they may be contacting uh, the most uh, infectious patients. So I guess you know the weaknesses of what's happened could be related both to a failure to recognize the scale of the need and also to uh, establish firm categories of who is supposed to have what protection. The point I want to come back to is this. You mentioned earlier that a simple surgical mask will do if you're dealing with someone who's asymptomatic. But from what we know and understand of the disease so far, at least what I know and understand of this disease so far, is that you we know that you could be highly infectious up to five days before any symptoms uh, manifest themselves. So doesn't then logic dictate that actually dealing with anybody uh, would necessitate a high level of PPE when it comes to face masks? 
Well, on, on that basis, everybody should be wearing uh, high-level PPE and we should all be thoroughly locked down. Uh, at, at, at one level, one has to take a, a pragmatic approach to this. Right. Um, we, uh, uh, I have to say, it is a particular area of interest of mine to actually measure, to, to try to achieve ways of uh, sampling people that would measure how infectious they are. And I can tell you from our own recent work that uh, it, 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 uh, we, we have people who are putting out maybe a thousand times more or less than each other uh, when we sample them. And uh, uh, that sort of information is really not, the science just isn't there yet. Right. Uh, the, the truth is we'd have to sample everybody and find out who's actually breathing out the virus uh, and, and see whether that was connected to the number of people around them who were infected. And all the time, we're, we're, it's a, there's a lot of shadow boxing going on here. We're, we're, we're making our best guess mm -hmm. and uh, uh, working uh, on the basis of uh, you know, a combination of what we can do on what we think is right. And uh, it, it's very difficult. And uh, I, I, you know, I have sympathy uh, at one level for what's been done and uh, frustration that some of the things that seem obvious to me have not been done. Like what? Can you give us an example of something that seemed obvious to you but has not been done? <laughs> I've, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I dug myself a hole there, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um well, I do think it is obvious that we should try to measure what people are breathing out. And uh, a, 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 there's a lot of information, as you have said, uh, suggesting that there are uh, asymptomatic people who are infectious. And there's a lot of information about people who are clearly more infectious than others. In the very early phase, we had a few individuals who are uh, uh, who travelled and clearly infected uh, a large number of others, and in my own experience, I have a, a colleague who who I sampled, uh, who who was symptomatic. Uh, he was found to be positive well after his symptoms had gone, just detecting the the genes of the virus. But none of his family were infected, so there's there's there there is a lot that we just don't understand about how infectious people are and you know one of my concerns is that we we haven't really made much progress in understanding that talk radio alexis conran on talk radio with the times and the sunday times know your times and delighted to say that we're joined by current uh, Labour MP, Jonathan Reynolds, who's also the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary. Uh, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Uh, glad to have you on. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts about the uh, the oncoming second phase, so to speak, that we're going to hear about uh, on Thursday. The Prime Minister said that... Uh, uh, the options that we're going to have about lifting the lockdown. We don't know much yet. Uh, as Gloria pointed out, it's uh, qu quite uh, interesting what's not in the newspapers. Uh, this Sunday, usually we have quite a lot of leaks of what's about to be announced, but uh, the Sunday pa papers seem to be devoid of 
any sort of plans that the government has uh, to announce this week. But one of the questions that keeps coming up uh, uh, around polling is that quite a lot of uh, people are going to be reluctant to visit, for example, pubs and restaurants. But also, there's a lot of indication that the majority of people can be reluctant to go back to work. And what I want to know from you is, uh, do we have a danger that we might get into a situation where the government feels it's important to restart the economy, i.e. get people back to work who should be working, but people feeling unsafe to do so? What? what's going to happen then? Let's say if your employer says, right, we need you back at work, and you're saying, well, I don't feel comfortable. I don't want to go back to work because I don't feel safe enough. Yeah, absolutely. Good morning. I think that is the right question. So a lot of the speculation so far has been about when the lockdown will end. A much bigger question is really how it will end, exactly as you say. So first of all, when the lockdown began, uh, myself as a local MP, you know, MPs across the country were inundated with questions about people about their workplace. So if they were on the shielding list, but they had health needs, uh, if they had to go into work and they didn't want to go in, they didn't feel safe, whose responsibility was that? Was it theirs as the employee? Was it the employer? What was the role of, of the health and safety executive? And all of that will have to be explained to people before they're asked to go back to work. There'll have to be some sort of assessment of every workplace so that people know that legitimate concerns have been taken into account. And if they're asked to go back to work, it will be safe. And as you say, different sectors will have different problems. So if you work in something, we've had a lot of, of stuff in the press recently about the aviation sector. You know, in terms of people going back onto holidays, clearly a lot is going to have to happen for that to be available. You're going to have to have people not only uh, back at work, but with the disposable income to go back on holidays. So that will tell us, of course, just how many people will need to be continue to be supported because they can't go back to work because their the business simply isn't open yet and that of course will affect the wider government levels of support and the costs of that so i think starting to talk about how lockdown will end and how people will get back to work separate to how long we need lockdown to go on for it is the right conversation because otherwise frankly people will not want to go back to work as they think they're going to be in danger in some way jonathan uh it would be a shame if uh after this uh lockdown and the crisis um, we don't have a look back at uh, what measures we had in place to help people that needed the help. I think certainly a lot of people, certainly a lot of people I've spoken to, have got a different view uh, uh, of uh, the benefit system, the universal credit system, and I've actually realised how important it is um, for, to have that safety net. But there's also a lot of talk uh it's becoming a, a little bit more coming into the social consciousness things like for example universal basic income where does the labor party stand with such an idea i know that uh he's now on the shadow front bench ed miliband talked about it on his podcasts uh for example when he was in exile at the back in the back benches um it, it, it's it's one of those ideas which a lot of it gets people very very excited to start with but i've had a little chat about it with gloria i'm quite in favor of it but i find a lot of politicians go oh it sounds good but i, I can't quite throw my weight behind it what's the labor party's official stance with ideas such like such as universal basic income well you're right to say that there's been a situation now where lots of people who never thought they would experience the system as we have it have now experienced it or had some experience of it and one and a half million 
universal credit claims since the 15th of March. That, that is astonishing. It's about 10 times what we would usually expect the number of claims coming in that period to be. Uh, and you may know in the past I've been very sympathetic to ideas like UBI because I think one of the problems of the social security system is not enough people think it's there for them. And if people don't think it's ever going to be there for them, well, well, why should they care about how it works? And I think that's the big difference with social security as opposed to, say, the NHS, which is there for everybody, or the state education system, which, again, everyone will have some experience of usually within their lives. During the crisis, my choice as Shadow Working Pension Secretary has been, look, let's talk about the, the real pragmatic decisions that could be made that would increase support for people. I think people are always weary when politicians come on and say, this crisis now proves everything I thought to be true previously is now correct. But clearly, there are some technical changes, pragmatic changes the government could make that would improve a lot of people's lives, and that's what I want them to do right now. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio. With The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. We're going to move away for, from the coronavirus for a moment uh, to discuss uh, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, um, a, just before the lockdown hit and uh, the pandemic overtook all the news airwaves. Um, Priti Patel was in a spot of bother um, because of various allegations of bullying uh, from her time uh, in the Home Office and also previous times in, in uh, her other uh, offices of state that she occupied, or being in government, I should say. Uh, and of course, the, the height of this was uh, when her top uh, civil servant, Sir Philip Rutnam, resigned um, from the Home Office and is now uh, taking Ms Patel to a, a tribunal. Um, now, last week, uh, we had news that the uh, that Whitehall had conducted uh, their investigation on whether Ms Patel had broken the ministerial code, and she was found uh, to have not done so. They said they, they trawled through uh, all the various allegations, uh, emails, and all the evidence they had. Uh, uh, the quote, I believe, is they trawled through lots of material but found no evidence of that. However, none of this report has been made public. Um, Labour are demanding that it should be made uh, public. The Shadow Home Secretary, Nick Thomas-Simmons, has said that at a time when additional powers are being assumed by the government, the imperative of the public are completely assured that the conduct of senior ministers is even greater. But I, I don't want to take a partisan view of this, um, whether it's Priti Patel or anybody else. I just want to understand the processes of a tribunal such as this of unfair dismissal what what is the right process and does it differ uh when you are a secretary of state so to help us do that uh, we're joined on the line by shah qureshi his partner and head of employment and professional discipline uh, at erwin mitchell um welcome to the show shah thank you very much thank you um is it let me ask by this is it normal let's let's just assume that uh, Priti Patel is not a government minister. <clears throat> this is a, a, a big corporation. One of the very, very important people has had uh, bullying allegations uh, lodged against them. And there's an internal investigation. Are these internal investigations made public? Are people who have been uh, uh, at the centre of the allegations, are they consulted? Is their view taken into account? How do these things actually work? So... Um... In, in relation to big corporations and companies, the process is, is generally very different to the cabinet inquiry process that was initiated. Uh, the, the reason being is that 
usually corporations because whistleblowing and raising issues in the public interest are regarded as so important uh, that they have a written formal process which uh, the cabinet inquiry process isn't so there isn't a consistent written process to be followed uh, there are rights in relation to the complainant that they can um, first of all make representations uh, there's generally a right of appeal and they are notified of the details of the outcome so that's very different to the cabinet inquiry process where uh, certainly current, currently there's no transparency for those who do complain and there isn't any way to appeal. Um, the wider question of whether those findings are made public, uh, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, but certainly the complainant is specifically very involved within that process, either by way of a grievance process or some other specific whistleblowing process. And the legal action uh, is still being pursued by Sir Philip uh, Rutnam. There will be a tribunal. Would the Secretary of State, Bruce Purcell, have to attend that tribunal and defend herself? Uh, so, because the allegations, as I understand them, are specific and related to Priti Patel, uh, one would expect that she would be a witness in that trial However, often government ministers do not attend employment tribunals and sometimes they submit a written witness statement. Uh, but if there is no evidence given by her at all, that puts her in a, in a very difficult position and the Home Office in a very difficult position because um, Sir Philip, in this case, his, his witness evidence um, unless it's actually questioned, it, it, it will have um, it will be given great weight by the employment tribunal. So, so therein lies the problem. Really, is that she may not attend the tribunal unless um, the tribunal issues a witness order for her to attend. But if she doesn't give any evidence, she doesn't get to put her side of the story. So. It's a difficult quandary, um, but um, it's one that the government will have to uh, think very carefully about. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio. With the Times and the Sunday Times. Know your times. We have the return of Matthew Lazar. He's the director of the Progressive Centre UK think tank and former advisor to Ed Miliband. Uh, Matthew, great to have you back on. Good to be back with you. Uh, Matthew, I, I, I'm going to pick up on a question I asked earlier to uh, our uh, guest, Jonathan Reynolds, who's the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, because I think I found a fan of uh, universal basic income, and they're very few and hard between to find uh, MPs. And I refer to Ed uh, Miliband, which is actually the first place I heard about universal basic income. It was in the podcast that he was doing, and maybe he still does, which is yeah. uh, Reasons to be Cheerful. Uh, it seemed he had a lot of time. We could all do with a few of those at the moment. Yeah. (laughs) My God. If I hear for another launch of a podcast, I I might have to scream. Uh, But in the time, the Corbyn years, where uh, it seemed that Ed Miliband had a lot of time on his hands. uh, uh, Anyway, in that podcast, there was uh, the uh, talk about universal basic income. And it was was quite typical. Ed Miliband's reaction to it was typical of a lot of politicians, which is, yeah, I like it. Oh, it's, it sounds like a good idea, especially for a Labour party, you know, sort of a more leaning towards a socialist uh, side of politics. It sounds like a good idea, but always at the very end, like Gloria and I have discussed, like, oh, I'm not quite sure we want to be handing money out to people. But do you think the Labour Party is going to have a, a proper hard rethink on uh, something like universal basic income. Well, I think it's interesting that uh, UBI, as uh, to, to use this short version, yeah. uh, has become uh, uh, suddenly become fashionable in a wider debate because on in sort of uh, centre left discussions uh, amongst you know wonks of all, on the centre left across just Europe, but the world really, it's been a sort of hot topic for a few years. Um, And uh, it it was actually slightly beginning to go off the boil because the couple of places where it's been tried, it hasn't been uh, incredibly successful. There was an experiment in Finland uh, where uh, in a a smallish, uh, sort of 20, 30,000 person uh, town in Finland where it was tried and it was abandoned uh, as, as being perceived as not having achieved its objectives. Uh, and it, there's there's a, an experiment in Utrecht in the Netherlands, which uh, I think is still ongoing. But again, is just to look at it in a small scale, because, as you say, to people on the left in politics, it appears an incredibly uh, attractive idea, especially uh, the uh, factor that was driving uh, its emergence has been the idea of uh, automation, uh, that the whole nature of work is going to change, that, uh, you know, we're going to be taken over by the robots, that we're not all going to sit behind a, a desk or a, a, a machine in a factory uh, 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 for you know eight uh, nine hours a day, and clearly the coronavirus, where you know where many are working from home, people are working in different ways, that may accelerate it. Still, uh, I think that the problems that uh, there are, uh, which it, it sort of emerged from the debate before coronavirus, and I think it's important that whatever special measures are taken during the virus to keep people going, you know, sort of temporary, you know, furlough program is in its sense almost a universal basic income because it's it's been so widely applied because so many people. 
people are currently not being, uh, you know, not being employed, uh, being paid by their employers. But the problems with it is, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said for a Labour Party, is it doesn't reward Labour. Um, and actually, one of the, uh, 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 I was part of a, uh, a report a couple of years ago on this, and um, the, one of the biggest problems is it's oddly, it may not be very good at preventing poverty. Uh, <laughs> that actually it doesn't help the poorest people because the basic idea is, you know, the basic idea of the basic income is that if you give everybody the same amount, you're not targeting help at those who need it most, those who are having the toughest time. So in a sense, some of the original essence DNA of the welfare state, as we've known it in Britain, would be lost. So it's 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 one of those newly fashionable ideas that, um, uh, you know, that we should approach with caution because where it's been tried, it hasn't worked. Admittedly, they're very small scale experiments. And uh, when you debate it uh, and look at it and scrutinise it, there are serious problems uh, with it if you're on the centre left of politics and you care about um, uh, supporting those who need support most. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. Now, we are going to be talking about the international corporations who use complex but legal measures to shift their income around the world in order to cut their tax bills. And I'm delighted that we are joined by the woman who has led the fight in Parliament against tax avoidance and evasion, Margaret Hodge, the Labour MP for Barking. Thank you for being with us, Margaret. Good morning. Nice nice to be with you, Gloria. Um, So you want the companies that avoid paying tax in the UK to repay the coronavirus bailout. Is that right? Um, I do. Just think about it. These are companies that deliberately um, establish financial structures that have no other purpose than to avoid tax. Um, I mentioned in an article I wrote, companies like Starbucks, which... um, was the first company that set me off on the journey of this uh, tax justice uh, mission that I have. But they have structures which have no other purpose than to avoid tax. So they don't put into the common purse for the common good. And it seems to me in, that, in those circumstances outrageous that they should expect in these really difficult times to get money out of the common purse to save their businesses. Now, we want to protect their employees. We don't want all the Starbucks uh, coffee shops to close. But uh, so the way around it is rather than giving them grants, we should give them loans, which they pay back. And we could do things like actually insist that they pay no dividends at all. Because a lot of these companies, one of the, ones of the, one of the ways in which they take money out of the country is by uh, having shares in the names of their wives based like Philip Green, based in Monaco, and then he pays a great dividend and you don't pay tax on that. Uh, And we should also say that actually we might take an equity in the firms ourselves for uh, the exchequer, for us, the people, to own a part of the company if they expect some money out of the company, which uh, out of the taxpayer, which will be paid into the company. Uh, Dame Margaret, uh uh, whilst I, I uh, clearly understand that there is a, a sense of uh, injustice if if uh, companies that are based elsewhere when it comes to their tax affairs are now going to benefit from 
the public purse, the taxes that we pay. And as you said, uh, you want to see the uh, workers protected. Isn't it, is now the time to take this action? Because we've been talking about uh, uh, inequalities in, in ta the taxation systems in, in the UK for years. I mean, it's very all very well to say that some of these countries are able to avoid paying, paying their fair share of tax. But the truth is that they can do so because the governments and, and successful government, uh, successive governments, Labour governments, Conservative governments, our tax system allows them to do so. We know what the loopholes are. We keep them open. Well, let me say three things in response to that. These are all global companies. So it's much more difficult to control how they shift their profits between jurisdictions to find a low-tax jurisdiction, which is why we're constantly arguing the case. And David Cameron led this campaign uh, in 2010, 2012, around about you know, eight, eight years ago, to get a new deal, international deal, so that we can see for these global companies what their global profits are have it in one place and then divvy them up according to where they actually make their sales, make their money and therefore where they should be paying their tax. So there has to be an international agreement. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, our tax system is far too complex. I always say that. It's an mm. incredibly complex system. We should simplify it. And every time you add a new rule or a new tax relief to the tax system, you create yet another opportunity for somebody to find a loophole and uh, 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 and exploit it so that they avoid tax. And the third thing I would say is this, that don't think any parliamentarian ever, you know, when we introduce these laws, we don't introduce them for the purpose of people find, finding a loophole. We don't bring them in with that purpose. And very often, the people who help us write these complex tax rules are the big accountancy firms, the tax professionals, so they create the very rules. They write the technical drafts. They create the rules and then go back into their companies and exploit them for tax avoidance purposes. Thank you for downloading this podcast. A reminder, you can listen to Talk Politics live every Sunday between 10 and 1 p.m. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.